Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, The Doll's House by Catherine Mansfield. This is first published in the Nation and Athenaeum magazine, February fourth, nineteen twenty-two, and. Um, we're reading it out of the Everybody's Magazine publication, June 1926, which has some pretty delightful illustrations. Um, there's a double-page spread showing all the girls um, talking about the doll's house. And um, there's a picture of the doll's house itself. This is actually paired with another story, which um, I have not read and I've never even heard of the author. Um named martin martens have you read of anything by him not that i can remember yeah there's millions of people it seems millions of authors who just completely forgotten um but mansfield this story was first published in 22 and then somewhere in 23 and and then in 26 and honestly if you go online and type in Catherine mansfield the doll's house it is one of these stories like a few we've done that's just all over the world for teaching English. If you're going to be learning English, you're going to have to learn about Catherine Mansfield's The Doll's House. And there are endless numbers of tutors online who are willing to go over with their students uh, the character names and the plot and all the things that are involved in that. I think that it's, it's bizarre and also amazing. <laughs> um but I don't want to treat it like a, you know, a story that you have to study up for for the exam or the quiz. I want to just understand this story because um, I really like Catherine Mansfield, and she's very, very subtle, but very well subtle in what she's trying to say, but very um, good at getting you to where you have the questions. What is she saying? So. Um, before we try and answer that question, I basically need you to tell me, Eric, I would love for you to read this story to me and maybe help me one more time. I'll give it a shot. Um, although I think a female narrator would be better here, but Mm, maybe that's, that's just one of my many flaws that I'm not female. (laughs) The doll's house. When dear old Mrs. Hay went back to town after staying with the Burnells, she sent the children a doll's house. It was so big that the carter and Pat carried it into the courtyard, and there it stayed, propped up on two wooden boxes beside the feed room door. No harm could come to it. It was summer, and perhaps the smell of paint would have gone off by the time it had to be taken in, for really, the smell of paint coming from that doll's house Sweet of old Mrs. Hay, of course, most sweet and generous, uh, but the smell of paint was quite enough to make anyone seriously ill, in Aunt Beryl's opinion, even before the sacking was taken off. And when it was, there stood the doll's house. A dark, oily spinach green picked out with bright yellow. Its two solid little chimneys glued onto the roof were painted red and white, and the door gleaming with yellow varnish was like a little slab of toffee. Four windows, real windows, were divided into panes by a broad streak of green. There was actually a tiny porch, too, painted yellow with big lumps of congealed paint hanging along the edge. 
but perfect, perfect little house. Who could possibly mind the smell? It was part of the joy, part of the newness. Open it quickly, someone. The hook at the side was stuck fast. Pat pried it open with his penknife, and the whole house front swung back, and there you were, gazing at one and the same moment at the drawing room and the dining room, the kitchen and the two bedrooms. That is the way for a house to open. Why don't all houses open like that? How much more exciting than peering through the slit of a door with a mean little hall, with a hat stand and two umbrellas? That is, isn't it what you long to know about a house when you put your hand on the knocker? Perhaps it is the way God opens houses at dead of night when he is taking a quiet turn with an angel. Oh, the Burnell children sounded as though they were in despair. It was too marvelous. It was too much for them. They had never seen anything like it in their lives. All the rooms were papered. There were pictures on the walls painted on the paper with gold frames complete. Red carpet covered all the floors except the kitchen. Red plush chairs in the dining room. Green in the dining room. Tables, beds with real bedclothes, a cradle, a stove, a dresser with tiny plates and one big jug. But what Kezia liked more than anything, what she liked frightfully, was the lamp. It stood in the middle of the dining room table, an exquisite little amber lamp with a white globe. It was even filled already for lighting, though, of course, you couldn't light it. But there was something inside that looked like oil and that moved when you shook it. The father and mother dolls, who sprawled very stiff as though they had fainted in the drawing room, and their two little children asleep upstairs were really too big for the doll's house. They didn't look as though they belonged, but the lamp was perfect. It seemed to smile at Kezia to say, I live here. The lamp was real. The Burnell children could hardly walk to school fast enough the next morning. They burned to tell everybody, to describe, to, well, to boast about their doll's house before the school bell rang. I'm to tell, said Isabel, because I'm the eldest, and you two can come in after, but I'm to tell first. There was nothing to answer. Isabel was bossy, but she was always right, and Lottie and Kezia knew too well the powers that went with being eldest. They brushed through the thick buttercups at the road edge, and said nothing. And I'm to choose who's to come and see it first. Mother said I might, for it had been arranged that while the doll's house stood in the courtyard, they might ask the girls at school, two at a time, to come and look. Not to stay to tea, of course, or to come traipsing through the house, but just to stand quietly in the courtyard while Isabel pointed out the beauties, and Lottie and Kezia looked pleased. But hurry as they might, by the time they had reached the tarred palings of the boys' playground, the bell had begun to jangle. They only just had time to whip off their hats and fall into line before the roll was called. Never mind. Isabel tried to make up for it by looking very important and mysterious and by whispering behind her hand to the girls near her, "'Got something to tell you at playtime.'" Playtime came, and Isabel was surrounded. The girls of her class nearly fought to put their arms around her, to walk away with her, to beam flatteringly, to be her special friend. She held quite a court under the huge pine trees at the side of the playground, nudging, giggling. Together, the little girls pressed so close, and the only two who stayed outside the ring were the two who were 
always outside, the little Kelvies. They knew better than to come anywhere near the Burnells. For the fact was, the school the Burnell children went to was not at all the kind of place where parents would have chosen if there had been any choice, but there was none. It was the only school for miles. And the consequence was all the children in the neighborhood, the judge's little girls, the doctor's daughters, the storekeeper's children, the milkman's, were all forced to mix together. Not to speak of there being an equal number of rude, rough little boys as well, but the line had to be drawn somewhere. It was drawn at the Kelvies. Many of the children, including the Brunells, were not allowed even to speak to them. They walked past the Kelvies with their heads in the air, and as they set the fashion in all matters of behavior, the Kelvies were shunned by everybody. Even the teacher had a special voice for them and a special smile for the other children when Lil Kelvy came up to her desk with a bunch of dreadfully common-looking flowers. They were the daughters of a spry, hard-working little washerwoman who went about from house to house by the day. This was awful enough. But where was Mr. Kelvy? Nobody knew for certain. But everybody said he was in prison. So they were the daughters of a washerwoman and a jailbird. Very nice company for other people's children. And they looked at why Mrs. Kelvey made them so conspicuous was hard to understand. The truth was they were dressed in bits given to her by the people for whom she worked. Lil, for instance, who was a stout, plain child with big freckles, came to school in a dress made from a green art serge tablecloth of the Brunel's with red plush sleeves from the Logan's curtains. Her hat, perched on top of her high forehead, was a grown-up woman's hat, once the property of Miss Leckie, the postmistress. It was turned up at the back and trimmed with a large scarlet quill. What a little guy she looked. It was impossible not to laugh. And her little sister, our Elsa, wore a long white dress, rather like a nightgown, and a pair of little boy's boots. But whatever Elsa wore, she would have looked strange. She was a tiny wishbone of a child with cropped hair and enormous, solemn eyes, a little white owl. Nobody had ever seen her smile. She scarcely ever spoke. She went through life holding on to Lil with a piece of Lil's skirt screwed up in her hand. Where Lil went, our Elsa followed. In the playground on the road going to and from school, there was Lil marching in front and our Elsa holding on behind. Only when she wanted anything or when she was out of breath, our Elsa gave Lil a tug, a twitch, and Lil stopped and turned around. The Kelvies never failed to understand each other. Now they hovered at the edge. You couldn't stop them listening. When the little girls turned around and sneered, Lil, as usual, gave her silly, shame-faced smile, but our Elsa only looked. And Isabel's voice was so very proud, went on telling. The carpet made a great sensation, but so did the beds with real bedclothes and the stove with an oven door. When she finished, Kezia broke in. You've forgotten the lamp, Isabel. Oh, yes, said Isabel, and there's a teeny little lamp, all made of yellow glass with a white globe that stands on the dining room table. You couldn't tell it from a real one. The lamp's best of all, cried Kezia. She thought Isabel wasn't making half enough of the little lamp. 
No, but nobody paid any attention. Isabel was choosing the two who were to come back with them that afternoon and see it. She chose Emily Cole and Lena Logan. But when the others knew they were to have, all have a chance, they couldn't be nice enough to Isabel. One by one, they put their arms around Isabel's waist and walked her off. They had something to whisper to her, a secret. Isabel's my friend. Only the little Kelvies moved away forgotten. There was nothing more for them to hear. Days passed, and as more children saw the doll's house, the fame of it spread. It became the one subject, the rage. The one question was, have you seen Burnell's dollhouse? Oh, ain't it lovely? Haven't seen it? Yo, I say. Even the dinner hour was given up to talking about it. The little girl sat under the pines, eating the thick mutton sandwiches and big slabs of Johnny cake spread with butter, while always, as near as they could get, sat the Kelvies, our Elsa holding on to Lil, listening to, while they chewed their jam sandwiches out of a newspaper soaked with large red blobs. Mother, said Kezia, can't I ask the Kelvies just once? Certainly not, Kezia. But why not? Run away, Kezia. You know quite well why not. At last, Everybody had seen it, except them. On that day, the subject rather flagged. It was the dinner hour. The children stood together under the pine trees, and suddenly, as they looked at the Kelvies eating out of their paper, always by themselves, always listening, they wanted to be horrid to them. Emmy Cole started the whisper, Little Kelvie's going to be a servant when she grows up. Oh, how awful, said Isabel Burnell, and she made eyes at Emmy. Emmy swallowed in a very meaning manner and nodded to Isabel as she'd seen her mother do on those occasions. It's true. It's true. It's true, she said. Then Lena Logan's little eyes snapped. Shall I ask her? She whispered. Bet you don't, said Jessie May. Pooh, I'm not afraid, said Lena. Suddenly, she gave a little squeal and danced in front of the other girls. Watch, watch me, watch me now, said Lena, and sliding, gliding, dragging one foot, giggling behind her hand, Lena went over to the Kelvies. Lil looked up from her dinner. She wrapped the rest quickly away. Our Elsa stopped chewing. What was coming now? Is it true you're going to be a servant when you grow up, Lil Kelvie? shrilled Lena. Dead silence. But instead of answering, Lil only gave her silly, shamefaced smile. She didn't seem to mind the question at all. What a sell for Lena, the girls began to titter. Lena couldn't stand that. She put her hands on her hips. She shot forward. Yeah, her father's in prison, she hissed spitefully. This was such a marvelous thing to have said that the little girls rushed away in a body deeply, deeply excited, wild with joy. Someone found a long rope and they began skipping and never did they skip so high, run in and out so fast or do such daring things as on that morning. In the afternoon, Pat called for the Brunel children with the buggy and they drove home. There were visitors. Isabel and Lottie, who liked visitors, went upstairs to change their pinafores, but Kezia thieved out at the back. Nobody was about. She began to swing on the big white gates of the courtyard. Presently, along the road, she saw two little dots. They grew bigger. They were coming toward her. Now she could see that one was in front and one close behind. Now she could see that they were the Kelvies. Kezia stopped swinging. She slipped off the gate as if 
she were going to run away. Then she hesitated. The Kelvies came nearer, and beside them walked their shadows, very long, stretching right across the road with their heads in the buttercups. Kezia clambered back on the gate. She had made up her mind. She swung out. Hello, she said to the passing Kelvies. They were so astounded that they stopped. Lil gave her a silly smile. Our Elsa stared. You can come and see our doll's house if you want to, said Kezia, and she dragged one toe on the ground. But at that, Lil turned red and shook her head quickly. Why not, asked Kezia. Lil gasped. Then she said, Your ma told our ma you wasn't to speak to us. Oh, well, said Kezia. She didn't know what to reply. It doesn't matter. You can come and see our doll's house all the same. Come on, nobody's looking. But Lil shook her head still harder. Don't you want to, asked Kezia. Suddenly there was a twitch, a tug at Lil's skirt. She turned round. Our Elsa was looking at her with big, imploring eyes. She was frowning. She wanted to go. For a moment, Lil looked at our Elsa very doubtfully. But then our Elsa twitched her skirt again. She started forward. Kezia led the way. Like two little stray cats, they followed across the courtyard to where the doll's house stood. There it is, said Kezia. There was a pause. Lil breathed loudly, almost snorted. Our Elsa was still as a stone. I'll open it for you, said Kezia kindly. She undid the hook and they looked inside. There's the drawing room and the dining room. And that's the Kezia. Oh, what a start they gave. Kezia? It was Aunt Beryl's voice. They turned round. At the back door stood Aunt Beryl, staring as if she couldn't believe what she saw. How dare you ask the little Kelvies into the courtyard, said her cold, furious voice. You know as well as I do you're not allowed to talk to them. Run away, children. Run away at once. And don't come back again, said Aunt Beryl. And she stepped into the yard and shooed them out as if they were chickens. Off you go immediately, she called, cold and proud. They did not need telling twice, burning with shame, shrinking together, Lil huddling along like her mother. Our Elsa dazed somehow. They crossed the big courtyard and squeezed through the white gate. Wicked, disobedient little girl, said Aunt Beryl bitterly to Kezia, and she slammed the doll's house too. The afternoon had been awful. A letter had come from Willie Brent, a terrifying, threatening letter, saying if she did not meet him that evening in Pullman's bush, he'd come to the front door and ask the reason why. But now that she had frightened those little rats of Kelvies and given Kezia a good scolding, her heart felt lighter. That ghastly pressure was gone. She went back to the house, humming. When the Kelvies were well out of sight of Brunel's, they sat down to rest on a big red drain pipe by the side of the road. Lil's cheeks were still burning. She took off the hat with the quill and held it on her knee. Dreamily, they looked over the hay paddocks past the creek to the group of wattles where Logan's cows stood waiting to be milked. What were their thoughts? Presently, our Elsa nudged up close to her sister, but now she had forgotten the cross lady. She put out a finger and stroked her sister's quill. She smiled her rare smile. 
I seen the little lamp, she said softly. Then they were both silent once more. It's very hard to... It's very hard to say exactly why this is so powerful. I mean, I I can point to lots of stuff. And I I see other people attempting to point to lots of stuff. But um, to me, the things that are super important are the... One of the th- one of the things that's so interesting, I think you once told me is called this style of narration is it called free and direct. Is that what you called it? Yes. Okay. So it's a very weird style of narration. We don't see a lot of authors employing it. I- I've seen Mansfield employ it before, um, but we get we get these like the third to last paragraph there. It says at the end, what were their thoughts? That's a narrator talking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we get judgments all over the place, you know, um, and and they're almost like telepathic insights, not <laughs> from a particular viewpoint character, but from the author or how she is relating an experience, maybe that was a real experience. Um, there's a question or, or a statement near the end of uh, uh about halfway through the first page um perhaps it is the way god opens houses at the dead of night when he is taking a quiet turn with an angel dot 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 oh okay <laughs> um it's uh, it, it's a very I, I i guess this story couldn't work with another style of narration in the same way it does we get we get like so much packed in and yet what I think it's doing is it's a very subtle um, emotional effect. And I've seen terrible takes like they're saying this is all about class. And I think certainly class is in there. But if you look at the list of people who are acceptable, it's the milkman and the postmistress and everybody except for the washerwoman and her absent husband. And yet... At the end, we find out this weird little line um, that Aunt Beryl got a letter from Willie Brent, guy we've never heard of before, um, that is going to somehow be difficult for her. But now that she yelled at a girl and the two little girls that she was showing the house to, everything's going to be fine. Like, horrible. (laughs) Horrible. So... Um, uh, one effect um, is just uh, I notice when we get the description of the the two little washerwoman daughters, um, it's uh, it's uh, the Kelvies, right? It's mm-hmm. always our Elsie. Yeah, yeah I'm on her team. I know. It's spelled E L S E. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I mean, uh, there there are two names, Lil. And else, right? Little else. Mm-hmm. Um, and one always is holding on to the dress of the other. Um, I, I think the, the illustration is correct in depicting these as very young girls. Um, I think it's also supposed to be set in New Zealand, um, given uh, the place names and the uh, fact that it's summer and they're going to school. Mm-hmm. So there's something, there's something uh, different about it, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's as um, 
it's it's not so much about you know the British class system, even if it's pu- being published in a British magazine, as it is about just mean girls and uh, having si- uh, this this youngest daughter. I guess is uh, yeah, she is the youngest, Kezia, um, and her name, you know, like Lil and Els. I think they all have a little bit of meaning there. Kezia. Um, She's all she was the one if you if you look at it closely and you listen closely, she's the one who really cared about the lamp. And so when uh, Aunt Beryl comes and she's just about to point out the lamp to the the two little washerwomen girls, um, they are run off. But then the youngest, the one who never speaks, right? She says, I seen the little lamp. She too. There's a sympathy there. There's a kind of, um, it, it's not just about class. It's about being a human being and being nice and having friends. And it's so subtle and so good, Eric. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. I like it too. I'm uh, delighted that you found a good copy of this for us to read together. I think it is about, um, uh, how shall I put this? There are so many things going through here. Mm-hmm. It's clear that there are class differences. Um, Pat is a a man of all activity servant at yep. the Burnell's house. We don't ever get told that. We can just tell. He's got his pocket knife. He goes and fetches the kids. He's just our Pat. You know, yep. he stands Pat and does what's necessary. Uh, we don't get to see the parents, but clearly the Burnell's are the top of the pecking order because however the Burnell daughters uh, behave, that sets the model for everybody else in the school and the school gathers everyone together. There is only one family that gets excluded. Why bother with one family to exclude? Because as we see with Aunt Beryl, it feels good for at least some people to be able to lord it over others. We Mm -hmm. see that in great detail when the girls uh, are teasing the Kelvies. I think what we love about Kezia is that she doesn't see any of that stuff. She is a genuinely liminal character, right? She's on the gate and swings in and out. Mm -hmm. And the gate is white. It's pure and innocence. She's the one who delights in the godlike view. When God comes around at night with an angel, She wants to see the world beautifully ordered. And the lamp, the lamp should be the symbol of sight, of knowledge, of illumination. But instead, what we're told is not that the lamp doesn't light. We're told that the lamp, of course, cannot be burned. That is, you can't burn the fake oil in it. Well, that word burned is really significant because in that very next part of the story, Mm -hmm. almost immediately the children burned to describe the doll's house Mm -hmm. to the other girls at school. So the knowledge that they drew from this, or at least that Isabel drew from it was a knowledge of power, something that I can use to manipulate others. And of course their manipulation depends upon excluding the Kelvies. But that's not what Kezia sees. And that's why Kezia is the one who thinks of the lamp as the most perfect thing. And mm-hmm. she is in accord with our Elsa. Because Elsa, she is the alternative to the other girls. 
Mm-hmm. She's the one who is silent, attached by love and fear, and is satisfied to just have seen the light. I seen the little lamp. And that's enough for Lil to just sit with her silently. There is a communion there. Now, it's interesting to me that the way, and so quickly, so subtly, so incisively, Mansfield lets us know an example of what's wrong with the uh, the adults when we see that Aunt Beryl, it's the name for a, a hard stone, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when we see that Aunt Beryl was in fact terrified because somebody was going to do something that was going to uh, blackmail her, it was ex- mm-hmm. uh, harm her her reputation. Uh, and who was this person? It was Willie Brent which is a past participle of burn. Wow. Right? So Willie, right, somebody wanted something, and it there was such knowledge that after that there was no forgiveness. The, the choice of word here, throwing this whole thing back into a spiritual context where the most important thing is innocence, and the real innocence innocent ones, Kezia and uh, Elsa, they are the ones who share a genuine appreciation for the lamp. They are the ones who understand a godlike view. Our homes are not invaded. Kezia happily opens it up for observation. Mm. That connection that she makes, although she can't see it because Lil and and, uh, Elsa have been shooed off by uh, Aunt Beryl, that connection is so profound. It crosses the lines of class. It stands against the the fears and insolence of uh, money, of class, of of occupation, of grown-ups. Yeah, and pride. And pride. It's it's such a spectacularly wonderful moment. And it's so bittersweet because we know that the world hasn't changed. That what's so wonderful about Elsa is that she is able to contemplate that moment and have joy in it rather than feel bitter that she was shooed off, mm-hmm. that she was sent away. If only we could maintain that innocence and reach for people just by holding them to us. Mm. It's, it's a, I think, a gorgeous, uplifting story that simultaneously um, explains and criticizes what the adult world is like, but gives us reason to believe that human beings have in us something better. And, you know, dear old Mrs. Hay sent this as a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody came, stayed in that house and wanted to delight the children as a way of saying thank you. Mm-hmm. Children are not the only ones who wish that things could be manageable, cute and supportive. I I want to think that there's also a, a kind of impact on the future here, because when we find out why the, the children of uh, the washerwoman always dressed so strangely. Um, we find out where their clothes came from. 
Um, you know, even in the school, the, the teacher treats them differently. It's not just Mrs. Beryl, uh, Aunt Beryl, and the, the little girls, Isabel, right, and her friends, her mean girlfriends, right? It's also the teacher. Um, but we find out the way they, the way they were dressed comes from their homes. Why Mrs. Kelvey made them so conspicuous was hard to understand. The truth, well, truth was they were dressed in bits given to her by the people for whom she worked. Lil, by her, uh, Lil, for instance, who was a stout, plain child with big freckles, came to the school in a dress made from a green art serge tablecloth of the Burnells with red plush sleeves from the Logan's curtains. So these are the cast-offs, right? And it feels to they me are. like... Of course, it feels, what this means is that, uh, I mean, to me at least, I'm... Guessing to you, too, Jesse, um, Mrs. Kelvey is a thoughtful, hardworking, extraordinarily loving mother who manages to piece together from the, the leftovers, as you said, mm-hmm. the cast-offs of everybody else's life, a way to keep her children clothed and educated and they fed. always have food. I mean, and they have each whether other. Whether like her or not, whether her husband is a jailbird or not, which nobody knows for sure. Mrs. Kelvey is clearly somebody who deserves a great deal of respect. Mm-hmm. And we see that in her children. And the final but line of the that other description of them, too. In such a way as to see the situation of the Kelvey children as inherently bad because of their mother. That's right. At the end of the description of the how the Kelvies are dressed and how they walk around, one holding the other's dress, and at the end we see the description of uh, uh, the younger child, Elsie, uh, stroking the feather on her sister's uh, hat that is an adult's hat. We were told at the end of that description, the Kelvies never fail to understand each other. It's why they don't need to speak but why they're always together, why we never hear from the mother. And yet we can see that the mother is a loving parent who's doing the best under difficult circumstances with a whole community that treats them all with contempt. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, they have managed to gain dignity in silence while writers like Mansfield and readers like you and I find that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.